love you and to adore you and to trust you, to repent and to turn to you, to believe in you, to usher in your kingdom, a new Eden here on earth. And we do it all for your glory until that day that you uh, come back. And we believe in your second coming because of your first coming, because of what you've already done. Of course, we believe it by faith, but it's a faith, God, that you have established in this world and you have placed in our hearts as a gift that we get to unwrap and enjoy every day that we live in this journey of life. Father, we're in many different places uh, as we come into this room. These are your children here sitting before you. You know our hearts, you know our struggles, you know our temptations. You know our fears, you know our anxieties, you know our stress points. You know where we're thankful, you know where we're lacking. And you promised, Father, that you would give us in this world justice and redemption. And we desperately need both. We need someone to be just. We need a righteousness. And we need your arm to bring us salvation. We need it, as it says in Isaiah, we need the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and the garments of vengeance of clothing and all of these wrapped in zeal like a cloak. And we need that redeemer to come from Zion. We are in desperate need in this world for you. So we pray, even some of the situations that we've experienced this week, the lament over the report from other denominations about abuse that's gone on in churches and congregations, the grief and the anger and the fear over school shootings, the pain that comes with living in the fallen world, the thankfulness for men and women who have served and sacrificed their lives for our freedom, and the joy and the privilege that we have to be able to love our neighbors and share a, a cold cup of water with somebody in need and to give up of our time and our energies to make sure somebody else is loved or cared for through a call or a visit or a text or an email. Remind us all today, Father, that we are your ambassadors on this side of the Jordan River. And give us a great joy in that endeavor. Meet us where we are now through your word and guide us into what you want us to do, how you want us to live, believe, think, and give us joy in Christ. We pray in your name. Amen. We are always moving on um, from one thing to another. All of life is transition. <laughs> you know, we, we hoped that we would get to one point in time where things would stay steady, but they just, it never, it never happens. All of life seems to be transitioned from one thing to another. Look, it could be as simple as matriculating from eighth grade to high school. 
and the fears that come with that, walking into a new set of doors and wondering what life is going to be like and who are your friends going to be. Or it could be as complex as moving cities while you're in high school or while you're in junior high. Your father, your mom gets a new job and you have to move cities and find new friends. That's a little bit more complex. It could be as simple as getting broken up with in college. And I know that's not simple. I know that's painful, but it could be more complex, right? You could lose uh, your young bride or your young husband to cancer or to death. It could be more complex. But nothing seems to stay the same. There's always jobs that are changing. There's always lives that are changing. You're, you're moving from uh, having a life of kids to empty nesting. You're moving to retirement. You, know, you think you have something that's going to work out in business and it falls through all of life, all of life. It just seems like it's transition after transition after transition. Which is why it's so important that we remember when Jesus says, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am the Alpha and I am the Omega. I am the beginning and I am the end. I am the one constant that you will have in your life. So hold on to me because I'm never going to change and I'm the same forever. It's so important that we remember that because all of life is transition. And with transition, there's grief. You're letting go of something. And with transition, you find things that you had lost, artifacts, we'll call them. And with transition, there's always a new work that God's calling you to. There's always something that you have, are called to do with uh, courage and with strength when it comes with transition. And all of life is transition. And in this text, as we come to First Chronicles 28, in this text, we see that there's a major transition a transition between David and between Solomon. Now, that's hard for David. It's hard for Solomon. It's also difficult for the people. And they're transitioning from the king that they had known and the king that they had loved to now this guy named Solomon. And we'll see how it works out. But here's what we'll see. There's grief. There's going to be new artifacts found uh, and restored. And then there's going to be a new work that they're called to. Now, let me just point this out real quick, historically, because if you're reading through the Bible uh, with us, and uh, welcome Bible readers, uh, as you're reading through the Bible with us, there's First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. That actually makes First through Four Kings. It was originally named First through Four Kings. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Chronologically, Chronicles goes over top of those. So if you imagine you're going down the road and there's a car carrier, like an 18-wheeler with cars, and you imagine each car represents a book. This is a hard analogy to get to what I'm trying to say. Uh, I, I'm dropping this the second service, but I'm into it now, so I got to f- <laughs> finish what I started. Uh, the first Samuel is one car on the lower level. First, second Samuel, first Kings, second Kings, all cars on the lower level. And then chronologically, this is time. This is an awful analogy. Cr- <laughs> Chronologically, there's two cars on top. That's First Chronicles and Second Chronicles. So one starts at the end of First Samuel and it ends at the end of uh, Second Kings. Um, y'all just pretend like you understood that, if you would. <laughs> Chronologically, Chronicles sits over First, Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Now, in this text, we get to this text where David and Solomon are here in this major transition. And what we see first is the hope of grief. Let's read just verses 9 and 10. 
And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Now, why would we call this grief? Why would I call this the hope of grief? Here's why I would call it grief. It looks like it's this wonderful charge, this wonderful transition uh, between David and between Solomon. Uh, Now, you go build this temple, but that comes with a lot of pain because David couldn't build this temple because the Lord told him, you've got far too much blood on your hands. You've slaughtered way too many people. And I can't have you build my house, which is supposed to be a house of prayer. It's supposed to be a house of peace. And calling people to invite them in. I mean, think of David's dilemma. Calling people to invite them in when people going, the guy that built this house slaughtered my village. The guy that built this house killed my grandfather. Why would I ever go worship his God? And so the Lord says, David, it's not going to be you. But David loved the ark. Remember, he wrestled it back from the Philistines. He's the one that secured this, uh, f- the property here at the threshing floor of Aruna at the end of 2 Samuel. He's the one that took over Jerusalem. He's the one that was the conquering the good king. And the Lord said, all the things that you did in life, I'm not going to let you finish the one thing that you wanted to do. I'm not going to let you do it. First Chronicles 22, David says, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. In other words, I desired to do it. And if you read First Chronicles 22, you'll see he's doing all the prep work. He's getting all the nails prepared. He's getting all the stones cut. I mean, it's his desire, his ultimate desire that he would get to build this temple. Verse 8, but the word of the Lord came to me saying, you've shed much blood and you've waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. David was confronted with that and it would have caused him great grief. Let me read to you a a a stunning and a startling verse. I'm sure you've read it before, but 1 Timothy 5, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. In other words, David's sins in his warfare are catching up with him. And that's a startling voice because the sins that you're doing that you think you're getting away with will eventually run you down. That's when, uh, when people say to me, and I get this question a lot, Andy, it's not hurting anybody. I mean, she and I agreed to do this. I mean, why is it hurting anybody? Why is it any of your business? It's not hurting. When, when somebody says it's not hurting me, I typically say this, how could you possibly know it's not hurting anybody? 
How could you possibly know that? How could you possibly have objective truth or prophetic vision to say what the impact of what you're doing right now will be down the road 10 or 20 years? How could you possibly know that? You can't. Some sins run behind. So the only thing you can do is trust the Lord with what he says to do in that situation, in that time. And David, I'm sure, was grieving. Even when he looked at Solomon Sometimes I wonder if he was thinking about his son who died, the unnamed one from his affair with Bathsheba. And I wonder when he was charging Solomon if he thought it should have been the other one, the one I lost because of my sin. But I think there's great grief here in these verse, two verses. Now, here's what I want to say. There's a point to grief. Godly grief leads to repentance. 2 Corinthians 3, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, where worldly grief produces death. Look, he could have just sat there in his grief. He could have said, if I'm not going to build the temple, nobody's going to build the temple. But his godly grief produced repentance. And friends, I do want to give us a space this morning uh, to grieve. Not only Memorial Day weekend, but also the shootings and also all the pain that we constantly see on the news. And there is a weird line that we try to walk at Mitch Road between addressing all the issues of the day and also having the sanctuary being a place of rest. And we're, we're always trying to make sure we walk that line. I've got many, many personal opinions on the shootings in Texas, but none of them will preach, right? You can ask me, I'll tell you all day long. But this place should also be a place of rest, but it also should be a place of repentance. Because at the end of the day, whatever grief we're feeling, whatever pain we're feeling, should lead to our repentance. And repentance is a beautiful, beautiful gift. Here's the picture in my mind when I think of repentance. Years ago, we had a storm. And we had one of those like black ice kind of storms. You know those if you're from South Carolina where it kind of ices over. And we had a session meeting. And I decided we're just going to keep the session meeting. We've got stuff to do, so we're just, I'm going to keep these guys here. And a couple guys kind of came up to me and said, it's getting bad out there. And I'm like, you're, you're fine. You're fine. South Carolina, you're going to be fine. Well, not every elder made it home that night. Let's just say that. A couple guys got stranded on the road. Probably should have let them go earlier. I remember it took me two hours to get home. And I live eight minutes away. And uh, you don't know what hills are unless, two things, unless there's ice on a hill and then you realize, oh, this is a hill. I never realized this was a hill before. Or if you're running. And sometimes you go for a run and you're like, I had no idea this was this steep uh, until you run it. And I got to the top of East North Street over there by the bridge and I stopped my car and there was a carnage of cars down there at the bottom, just all combined together. And part of me, that's the place of temptation. The place of temptation for me was, I'm going to show these guys how a Western PA guy does it. <laughs> and I'm going to go down there and just go by him with a smug look and, show, you know, accelerate up. And then that's the temptation point. You know what repentance is? Repentance is when you start down and you're slipping and sliding. And God has the ability to stop you even then. That you've already gone past the point of temptation. 
and you're, you're now going down the road of sin and you are sliding, God actually can stop you then through repentance. And even if you crash in the bottom, there's redemption and hope at that point too. God, through repentance, has the ability to stop your slide into sin. You don't have to go all the way down in that godly grief. God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be like this. That godly grief is what produces repentance. But we, we grieve, but not without hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Look at what it says here in the text. Verse 9. Solomon, you... God of your father shall serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts, and he understands every plan and every thought. He knows everything about you. So let me stop here before we get to the next point, because I've been convicted lately that I need you to do the work. What is it right now in your life that you're grieving? What have you lost? Or what are you losing? could be your health, could be your kids, it could be a job, it could be the air conditioning in this sanctuary, <laughs> the comfort of it being perfectly 70 degrees all the time everywhere you go. What are you losing? And is it making you bitter or cynical or angry? And you do the work. You're here to interact with the Lord, not just listen to me. What is it you need to repent of? Where are you sliding out of control? And if it doesn't stop, you're going to end up in a pile at the bottom. Where do you need to repent? Now, number two. After the hope of grief, the love of artifacts. Let's read this long section of this text. Then David gave Solomon, his son, the plan of the vestibule of the temple and of its houses, its treasuries, its upper rooms, and its inner chambers, and of the room for the mercy seat, and the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the Lord, and all the surrounding chambers, the treasuries of the house of God, the treasuries for dedicated gifts, for the divisions of priests and of the Levites, and all the work of the service in the house of the Lord, for all the vessels of the service in the house of the Lord, the weight of gold for all the golden vessels for each service, the weight of silver vessels for each service, the weight of the golden lampstands and their lamps, the weight of gold for each lampstand and its lamps, the weight of silver for a lampstand and its lamps, according to the use of each lampstand in the service, the weight of gold for each table for the showbread, the silver and the silver tables, the pure gold for the forks, the basins, the cups, the golden bowls, the weight of each, the silver bowls and the weight of each, for the altar of incense made of refined gold and its weight. Also, his plan for the golden chariot of the cherubim to spread their wings and covered the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And he made this clear to me in the writing from the hand of the Lord, all the work to be done according to the plan. And so here David, he gives him all of the instructions to Solomon. This is exactly how you should do it. And not only this is how you should do it, I've pre-funded it. Here's all the gold you're going to need to build this. Here's all the silver that you're going to need to build this. And there is, at this moment, the great love. If you've never thought of it this way, you should. The great love of artifacts stored within the temple and stored within the tabernacle are all these, it couldn't be described any other way, but besides artifacts 
that remind us that God had shown up and had provided. That's what artifacts do. Artifacts aren't meant to so, show that someone's dead, but that someone was alive, truly alive. We had my daughter's last ballet performance uh, of her entire career yesterday. I'm not crying, you're crying. And the artifacts that come with that, she's got like a hundred some point shoes. And she's gonna, I said, are you gonna throw them away? She said, I'll keep them all. She's got dried flowers. They're artifacts of a prior life. They're artifacts that remind you of what you did or what you experienced. A time capsule, you open up a time capsule, you find artifacts of what life was like. They remember, they teach you about life and they teach you that you're not lost. And here the plans for the temple include all of these artifacts and it's beautiful actually. Look at it again, the vestibule and the chambers meant to welcome people in. Come into the outer courts. It's not exclusive. Come into the outer courts and work your way to the inner courts and let the priest sacrifice for you. The mercy seat, verse 11, at the center of the temple. In our religion, the mercy seat is at the center of everything we do. Mercy, different than grace. Mercy saying, God will not punish you for what you've done. Grace, God will give you unmerited favor for what you haven't done. And there we see the mercy seat at the center. God withholding the punishment. We see gold, which is a sign of purification. We see the lampstands for direction and light. We see the temple and the showbread for provision and care. We see the bowls that are meant for cleansing. And we see the cherubim and we see the Ark of the Covenant. God's provision, all the artifacts of God saying, look how good I've been to you. Remember this. Now, let me kind of do a little history lesson with you. Where is the temple now? Uh, Interestingly, the temple was meant to be a recreation, not of the tabernacle, but of Eden, And in Eden, there were two trees set on the hill, a tree of knowledge of good and evil and a tree of life, both set on the hill. And Adam and Eve were meant to dwell there with the Lord forever. And when they sinned, the Lord found them there and he dwelled with them. And then when they were kicked out, where were they kicked out? They were kicked out east. And they had to pass through who? They had to pass through two angels, And then the tabernacle was a temporary tent of temple, which is always set up facing east. And if you go to any Jewish synagogue right now, sometimes you'll go by a synagogue and you'll say, what civil engineer lost their license for placing that building on that direction on that property? It's because the synagogue ruler said it's got to be facing east. And so the doors have to be east. And so all of them are. You find any synagogue, they're all facing to the east, representing Eden. The tabernacle was then set up that way. And then the temple is the permanent tabernacle facing to the east. And to get back to it, you have to go back the same way through the footsteps of Adam and Eve. And that's why there's two cherubim, just like there were two angels at the ark at Eden. There's two cherubim then at the ark of the covenant. Now, here's what we see. This temple was built. This is called the first temple. This is going to be destroyed, first plundered by the Assyrians in 722, and then it's going to be destroyed by the Babylonians in 586. And then Ezra and Nehemiah are going to build another temple. 
not quite as good as this one, so people are going to weep over that. And then that temple will be the temple where Jesus is when he comes to this earth. That temple will be destroyed in A.D. 70. And now that gold dome that you see in Jerusalem, if you look at pictures of Jerusalem, that is built by the Muslims and the Jordanians basically in the 7th century. And there's even talk, uh, Jewish people are even talking now about trying to build a third temple. But for us, for Christians, we're the temple. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 3. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. As anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might be wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. And in 1 Corinthians 6, then do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. So we now, we are the temple. Everybody in this, who has this Holy Spirit, you're the representation of God on this earth. And with you, you have all the artifacts. You, you have kindness. You have provision. You have all the things in your life that you get to distribute to others and remind other people that God exists in this world. That God is alive and well. That God is not dead. And you have that important, important role of distributing the artifacts of this kingdom to this world. You're of great, great price. And God has found you. And he's brought you in this room. And he's let you worship him. And he's redeemed you because you're of great value. Antique Roadshow, I saw this a couple years ago. This, uh, if you don't know how, they, how it works, somebody brings uh, some piece of pottery they found in their grandmother's basement, and they say, is this worth anything? And the, the appraiser either says, I hate to let you down, it's worth exactly two cents. Or they say, it's actually worth a million dollars. It never just goes like in the middle road, you know. It's, it's always one or the other. And, and the, the, the prize thing is always going to come at the end of the show. So just record it, and then nobody wants to see what's worth $2. Just record it and go to the very end of the show and watch what's worth a million. And in this one uh, situation, the appraiser said, I believe, it was a, a table, I believe. I believe that a conservative number would be between $1 million and $1.5 million for this. And the guest said, are you serious? But they don't joke. Appraisers aren't known to be funny. <laughs> They're a very meticulous kind of person. The appraiser said, I'm serious. The guest said, well, <laughs> the first thing they said, well, I guess I don't have to depend on Social Security. That's what they said. <laughs> and the appraiser said, do you think this changes things? And the guest says, wow. And the appraiser said, you pursued something you loved. You weren't worried about the money. That was the last thing, and the guest said, are you serious? And the appraiser said, I'm as serious as I can be. And the guest said, I need my inhaler. I have asthma. I'm not doing well. <laughs> that was the whole thing. And then they laughed, and they cut it off. It's hard to believe, friends, but it's true that you're of great value. 
You're Christ's treasured possession that he has put faith in your heart to believe in him so that the Holy Spirit might dwell in you so that you might display the artifacts of God's love and provision to this world. It's you. It's me. It's all of us who have the Holy Spirit. That's your calling. So don't think for a second when you're washing laundry with the integrity of Christ that you're not doing something holy. When you're giving a good business deal that you get profit and the other person gets integrity, that you're not doing something of value. When you're sharing a cold cup of water with somebody, that you're not doing something of intense, eternal value. You and I are God's temple on this world where God dwells, bought at a price. We are not our own to display and to show who God is and what he's doing. And sometimes I think we forget that. We just go about our week pretending we're of no value or we should be discarded. Or maybe we've had so many people in our ears telling us we're not worth anything that we've started to actually believe it. But you and I are God's treasured possessions to make it Eden here on earth. And quickly and lastly, the faith of work. Look at what he says here at the end, verse 20. Then David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do it. Where did we hear that before? From Moses to Joshua. There, <laughs> there's never going to be a day. I, tell this, I say this to people all the time. There's never going to be a day of your life where you're not going to have to practice faith and repentance. Like we try to live each day like we're not going to need faith and repentance. You need it every day. And there's probably never going to be a day of your life where you don't need strength and courage from the Lord to get you through the work of that day. Next verse, so do not be afraid, do not be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. So here's the work. God's going to be with you. It's not going to be easy. Verse 21, and behold, the divisions of the priests and the Levites for all the service of the house of God and with you and all the work will be every willing man who has skill in every kind of service. Also, the officers and all the people will be holy at your command. Be strong and courageous. Now go do this work and God will be with you. So let me pause again. We're almost finished here. Let me pause. What work is God calling you to do? Maybe it is love your neighbor or love your spouse. Maybe it's the work of forgiveness. Maybe it's the work of generosity. Maybe it's the work of repentance. Maybe it's the work of reaching out and encouraging somebody. Maybe it's the work of creating something beautiful in this world. It could even be larger. It could be I need to start a nonprofit or I feel like I'm called to a new job where I can spend more time with my family. What work, what work is God calling you to? Part of the reason you'll know what work is, you'll be fearful of it. That's why God says be strong and courageous. You don't have to be fearful of this. I'll be with you the whole way. I love what Amy Sherman says when she says, every act of faithful service, 
every honest labor to make the world a better place, which seemed to have been lost forever and forgotten in the rubble of history, will be seen on that day at the final resurrection to have contributed to the perfect fellowship of God's kingdom. All who committed their work and faithfulness to God will be by him raised up to share in the new age and will find that their labor was not lost and that it found its place in the completed. See, there's a faith of work. That's why I called it that. Because you don't know what will come of your labor until the resurrection. You don't know what that phone call will mean. You don't know what that reaching out to that person will mean. I paid for a homeless person's lunch the other day. Don't give me any credit for it. They had a credit card. I don't think it was even a legit credit card. They were in front of me in line. They couldn't get it to work. The managers showed up, three managers now. We're sorry your card won't work. It's an $8 lunch. The person is clearly homeless. They won't just give them the food. It's baffled me. I said, I'll I'll do it. I'll cover it. Put it on my tab. Now, why did I do that? It's not because I'm a generous or kind guy. I did that because when I was 10, I had to get taken to the ER because I was through my lip, bit through my lip. I think, I, I can't remember if it was a fight or I wrecked on the bike. Both are legit possibilities. But anyway, my lip was all shattered up and I had to go to the ER and get it all patched. I still have bumps on the inside. You'll never see them, but I, I still I have all kinds of scars from getting in fights. And uh, I went to the ER and there's this homeless guy who had gotten hit by a car and he's all bloodied up. And they said, sir, you're next. And he said, let this kid go instead of me. I'll never forget that. He has no idea. I'm sure he's dead by now. He was old then. I'm, I'm sure he's passed. I have no idea if he's a believer or not. But I'll never forget this bloodied up, battered guy saying, let this kid with a bruised lip go. And the faith of that has inspired me years and years later to say, if somebody's in need, you let them go first. You take care of it. We have no idea, no idea the things that we do for the faithfulness of Christ, how they will pay out down the road. And that's why it is the faith of work that he will never leave us or forsake us. And now, friends, let me close with this. It's the work of Christ that seals the deal for us. When Christ said to Telestai, it is finished That was the greatest catastrophe ever. A catastrophe is something bad that happens. A catastrophe is a sudden turn of events that works things together for good. And I want you to do this. Just at the end of this sermon, I want you to think about the crucifixion and Christ saying, it's finished. Pay for all your sins. Cover the tab. Not only that, I'm giving you my righteousness so you get credit to your account that you can never spend. I want you to meditate on that for a second. Now I want you to think about the resurrection. Might be helpful to look at the cross, draped in white. That at the resurrection, God changed everything forever. 
and he gives us hope and newness of life and the repentance and the death of our sins that comes with the crucifixion brings new life in the resurrection. And we don't have an image of it. But finally, theologically, think about the ascension. That Christ right now lives to intercede for you to hear your voice in prayer, to hear you cry out for needs, to welcome you in when you're lost. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And when you can't get a prayer together, only mumbling words or tears, Christ whispers into the Father's ear, I know what they're trying to say. Be kind to them, for I bought them with a great price, my father. They are now my brother and my sister, trying to establish a new Eden on that place earth until you send me back. Will you send me back soon? In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Jesus, we do pray you would come back soon. And until that time, may we encourage each other and the work that you give us to do, and the hope that comes with grief, and the distribution of artifacts of what you're doing in our lives. As you call us your treasured possession, we love, we adore you. May we worship and serve you this week with great joy and thankfulness. We pray in Christ's name, amen.